good day and welcome to another episode of the 905er podcast. My name is Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. Today we're welcoming back Cole Dockstadter and Sean Vanderclees to speak again about the latest developments that touch on the dispute at 1492 Landback Lane on the edge of Caledonia and the Six Nations Reserve about 20 kilometres south of Hamilton. Sean and Cole host a fantastic radio show called One Dish One Mike on Sunday mornings at 10am on AM 610 CKTB. You can also listen to current and past episodes by visiting iHeartRadio.ca and searching for One Dish One Mike. It's a sad fact that the First Nations and 905 region, as across Canada, tend to get coverage in the news when something happens that conflicts with the convenience of non-Indigenous Canadians. Invariably, money and property interests follow closely after. With that in mind, a declaration on April the 20th by the traditional chiefs of the Haudenosaunee people seemed calculated to grab attention. It declared a moratorium on all development in what is known as the Haldeman Tract, a large swathe of land running from Dunville on Lake Erie to about 40 kilometres north of Orangeville in the north, and including in its boundaries almost the entirety of Brantford, Kitchener-Waterloo, along with many other smaller settlements. The tract was granted to the Haudenosaunee people in 1784 in return for their loyalty during the American Revolution. We wanted to find out more about this declaration, what the background is, and what it means in practice, as well as looking at the wider picture of the members of the First Nations who live in the urban and rural 905 region during COVID. Well, welcome uh, back to the podcast, uh, Cole Dogstadter and Sean Vanderclees, uh, who uh, we had on about six months ago to talk about the uh, Land Back Lane uh, story. And um, we've been wanting to, to kind of revisit um, the whole area uh, again. And then last before there was an announcement uh, so here, the, the uh, Haudenosaunee Council about um, the Haldeman Tract, um, basically stating um, that there should be a moratorium, declaring there will be a moratorium on building on that land as the as land that belongs to Sony people. Um, and uh, uh, well, I guess we'll start off with with asking you, you know, what what's the uh, what's the purpose of this declaration, and, and what are what are the implications for it? Oh, do you want to kick off? Sure. So I actually went down and covered the press conference live um, in in person, and uh, it was. Definitely uh, not something that the Haudenosaunee do often. Uh, actually, having a public press conference once every year or so, there might be an issue of such importance that they'll issue something like this. So, so the fact that the media was invited to the longhouse itself just shows how how significant this uh, uh, declaration and uh, requirement for a moratorium was. Uh, it, it also shows, I think, that uh, a lack of faith in any other process that the Haudenosaunee felt the need to take this public in this way. Uh, what's what's um, really noteworthy, though, is that this declaration has been very consistent with what the Haudenosaunee have been asking for for a generation now, since Kanastaru which uh, was 15 years to the day of the OPP raid when, when the press conference was made. Uh, but also, honestly, for, for the past seven generations, the Haudenosaunee have been very clear about cautioning 
against overdevelopment and sacrificing the environment for for material gain for for a select few when the health of the land affects us all. So they they reiterated those principles of environmental stewardship. They also uh, what what I thought was really key and what I pulled out and and I hope this is reflected in my coverage is is that they actually did say they you know, they have faith in the Canadian people. They think the Canadians themselves are people that that have values and and share many values that the Haudenosaunee believe in. But it's it's the leadership, and they named the the politicians specifically. Uh, as the decision makers that are making that are making these decisions and putting this kind of policy in place, uh, so I thought that was noteworthy with with the sort of heated um, highway through the green belt debate that's happening, uh, and even uh, on a provincial level, who sets the kind of policy that allows expansionism. Uh, the pushback there was uh, around election time when when the Ontario government. Uh, or the prospective PC uh, candidates were looking to form government. And as soon as they talked about the green belt, it, it seems that a lot of people in Ontario share these principles of conservation that the Haudenosaunee mentioned. Um, Carl, just to, for our listeners to understand, now the Haldeman track uh, plot of land that, that we're talking about here is basically the, the my saying it's the Grand River with uh, six miles on either side, if, I, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, under under the original agreement, uh, uh, from you know seventeen, whenever uh, that it, that was originally written, it's a sizable tr- chunk of land that we're talking about here. Um, now, I, part of it I think does go it does go up into the green belt itself, <clears throat> uh, which presumably will be covered underneath the provincial legislation. But I mean, a, a good chunk of this is. Uh, is pushing up against uh, some municipalities in uh, in the southern Ontario. Um, what what has kind of been the the reaction from municipalities to this for uh, uh, for this declaration? Well, like Haldeman doesn't doesn't acknowledge uh, Haldeman County itself, where uh, the disputed land currently is. I mean, they don't even have like a territorial acknowledgement. On their website, the history starts the the second, according to the Haldeman County documents, the second that Indigenous people were were on the land. Uh, so that I mean that sort of frames how a lot of this dialogue goes. Um, but the the reality of the situation is that I mean I I can't speak for the Haudenosaunee, uh, and and I don't pretend to do that. But but my interpretation is that it really wasn't until this urban expansionism came into place. That, that there was all this concern about how the land would be used because farmland tends to benefit all of us. Uh, and obviously conservation areas like the Greenbelt benefit all of us, but a, a housing development for, for a few hundred people benefits a few hundred people. Uh, and then the very small group of people that are gonna make millions, hundreds of millions, uh, potentially contribute to some billion dollar companies along the way. So, but because uh, because municipalities need need sources of revenue, uh, I'm sure that that they want to see. I mean, uh, anybody who's looked at a municipal budget knows that uh, anytime you have a new development, right? Like you're you're looking at you can charge infrastructure costs and new development fees and and all kinds of land transfer taxes and fees. So so there definitely is a financial interest in municipalities to want to see these types of developments moving forward. Because again, you're pumping millions of dollars into, into a budget uh, and, and you're effectively injecting cash, which, which they all want. Um, 
you know, the way this was reported, uh, I went and read the actual declaration uh, that was made and the uh, you know, some of the, some of the other um, statements have been made over the last decade or so uh, about the Haldeman Tract uh, lands. And uh, I recommend anybody do that because what you get in the newspaper tends to be, you know, so superficial that it's almost uh, misleading. But to take the kind of traditional view of this kind of thing that I suspect many uh, many Ontarians would would sort of leap to is like these guys are trying to take my house away, um, you know, by claiming kind of the entire um, Grand River kind of uh, uh, area as as belonging to them. Is that what's going on here? Is this kind of like a um, are, are, the, are the First Nations of of, of the uh, of the um, of the Grand River um, area saying, "Okay, Canadians, you can't do anything here anymore. We're taking this land," or is it much more um, nuanced than that? I, I think it's it's more. I think it's a couple. There are a couple issues that we should look at. First off, is is, is the recognition that this land is is the rightful property of of the Haudenosaunee. And, and the Six Nations people themselves, right? This was promised to them for, for them um, fighting alongside the British uh, in, in the American Revolution while this was happening. They, they, they made an agreement. Thousands of people were sacrificed, lost their lives for their participation. As part of that agreement, they were promised, again, six miles on each side of the Grand River from the mouth to the source. Um, throughout time, throughout history, that's a huge parcel of land. I'm not sure how, if, if anybody is actually familiar with how big it is, but it, it, it is rather significant. Um, and, and going back in, in time itself, if you look at how big it is, what would happen is people would just live on that land. Uh, squatters would come up, take the land, live, cities were formed, communities were formed, villages were formed, so on and so forth. Um, so I think I think the first step we need to consider is, is just the recognition of whose land it is, right? Going through all these historical documents um, to outline that that it is the rightful owner. The Six Nations people, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, are the rightful owner of the land. Um, second is I don't think that it, that it is as simple as saying, "Hey, we own the land, so uh, the city of Caledonia, the township of Caledonia, you have to get out, you have to move," right? Uh, Caledonia being one of the prime examples of, of how relationships could work. Back in the day, Caledonia paid uh, uh, a renter fee or, or property fees to, to the Haudenosaunee. They, they agreed that they were going to rent this land from them and they were going to pay, pay a certain amount of dollars for X amount of years. Um, what ended up happening is, is they, never, they never followed through. Once the contract expired, they just kind of ignored it and said, you know what, we're not going to pay. We don't have to pay. Um, so I don't think it's about kicking people off the land. It's about acknowledging that that we all have rights, we all have responsibilities, and we all have contractual obligations that we need to to adhere to. Um, and I think for the Six Nations, and the, again, not to speak for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy or the people of Six Nations, but I think what they're they're attempting to look for is is that recognition of right. And, and uh, it's an important distinction here between. I remember back in about two thousand and. Two actually, before I actually lived in Canada, I visited the Joseph Brandt Museum in, in Burlington, and a, a, a lovely elderly uh, uh, white lady uh, explained to me the, the history of Joseph Brandt, and uh, uh, I, I suspect that history was was somewhat uh, 
partial and inaccurate as it turns out, but um, she meant well. Um, and she talked about, I, I believe that was the first time I heard about the Haldeman Tract and, you know, basically said this land was given to Joseph Brandt and then jo- the Joseph Brandt and uh, the, the Haudenosaunee people kind of sold it back to, to Europeans. Now, that isn't obviously how the Haudenosaunee people see it. Um, and I guess the differences between land that you can sell in a kind of European concept of, of selling land and also uh, sovereignty, where wherein you can sell, buy and sell land, but the land still belongs to the nation. Uh, you know, the, if I sell land um, to Fred Bloggs, who lives down down the road, it still belongs to Canada. In, in uh, you know, I don't alienate land away from the nation. Uh, I just sell it my interest in it. Uh, so I guess it's an awful lot of complexity for people to understand. But there, there's um, there's a lot of important distinctions there between kind of what actually happened back in 17, and I should look up the date, um, uh, which I have right here on my screen, back in, uh, it was a 1784. Um, and what's happened since in terms of how this land, the ownership of this land is kind of perceived by the Canadian state. I'm curious, what, what is their their objective long-term? Is it is it to reframe the, the the relationship between the the Canadian Crown and the Haudenosaunee leadership is it uh, more of an economic uh, pursuit? Is it an environmental pursuit? What, what what is their 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 objectives in uh, in making this declaration now? Sean, uh, go ahead. I want to say it's the assertion of their rights. Like, I mean, I think we're putting the, for lack of better terms, the horse before the cart, right? Um, What we need to understand is that if you buy land in Canada, that is a legally binding contract. And what you do with said land is is of no business to to any other party, any other third party. And for and for the Haudenosaunee, what we have continuously seen is is the the uh, illegal purchase the, the illegal acquisition of land that's being again being taken from them uh spokesperson for the 1492 camp itself has gone on the record and saying that we are the only community who is getting smaller in size and this is, has nothing to do with us this is everything to do with with the with governments with cities taking the land right these, let's keep in mind that what's happening in Six Nations is a recognized disputed land claim. There is dispute. The Canadian government acknowledges that there is a dispute. Hence the word being, uh, hence the word dispute being used in all, in all of it. But what's happening is people in Caledonia are proceeding while not even acknowledging that there is an issue, that there is a contentious issue. Um, and what we're seeing is that assertion of ownership, that this is our land. I don't care what you seem to think. I don't care about your perception. This is our land. We're going to sell it the best way we see fit. Um, again, First Nations people in the country of Canada, we are, we are confined to a limited amount of space via our traditional communities. My community of Curve Lake is, is that community. It's not going to get any bigger. I live in St. Catharines. We expand all the time. We do. The city of Welland expands all the time. Hamilton, Burlington, they're consistently expanding. They're consistently adding to, to their land base via, via amalgamations of, of cities and townships, so on and so forth, right? Like Niagara Region is, is during the last election, the Niagara Region was contemplating um, forming a, um, uh, like a GTA, very much a, a GTA-like council. 
um, very much like uh, again the GTA. <laughs> so, um, but uh, but that doesn't exist. We're not afforded those same opportunities as as other Canadians and other uh, other governments that exist in the country of Canada. Yeah, Joel, thank you, thank you for the question. And I agree with everything that Sean has to say, uh, and I agree with the. I appreciate Roland uh, asking about Joseph Brandt and the financial context. But but what I really like, I just want to interject here is is that land for me as a Haudenosaunee person that land for me is is not a material asset. This is not um, something that I own and that I, you know, it's not an asset or a liability or, you know, something on an expense statement somewhere that contributes to my overall equity. I, I want to echo what, what the Haudenosaunee chiefs were saying and, and saying that our connection to land is, is spiritual. So when you, when you take a forest and, and you want to put a sub, you know, a subdivision in the middle of it, uh, I mean, imagine if if someone went and wanted to plow through a church and make it into a condo development, like like just put it in that context for your listeners. I'm sure you have I'm sure you have uh, people of faith that listen to your program right now. And that's that's what we're talking about is as Haudenosaunee people like this isn't just some parcel of land, some acreage sitting out in, in the middle of anywhere. Our our entire spiritual self, which is integral to who we are as a people is connected to the land. So when you when you strip the earth off of the back of our mother and you plug in a bunch of electrical lines and telephone lines and internet lines and then put up these cookie cutter houses, I mean it, it's 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 debasing for us. It's it's hard to watch. It's it's difficult to explain to our children why why this is happening so i mean you know we can we can talk about joseph brandt and we can talk about the economics and what the municipalities want but but this is again going back to since we frame this around what the chiefs shared i mean this is very spiritually significant to to Haudenosaunee people and and while i share their faith in canadians to come around and and hopefully urge their leaders to make good decisions I mean, there there is a difference in culture here, and that that's why the two Rowampum and and why the Treaty of Niagara and why the one dish one spoon are so crucial to framing how these conversations should be happening. Yeah, I just want to jump. I know you have something to say, Joe. I just want to jump in quickly. I absolutely, that's really the point I was trying to get at is that that this as Europe as people of european background uh, overwhelmingly we view things in this european uh, people like me view things in this european legal framework of, of property and transfer of lands and th- that land can be dra- transferred uh, which is completely alien to the entire context of how the holderman tract came into existence and uh, and everything that's happened since and i think that's that is so important sorry joel you were uh, about to ask your question I was. I want to follow up on on something that Carl just said because we were before we were recording. We were just talking about uh, this issue is coming up, and there's one thing that we've noticed, uh, Roland, you and I, over recording issues of development and and uh, urbanization for this podcast is this this stuff is all connected. Um, it, it, and 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 I'm, I, this isn't to to take away from the 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 the, the importance of the land to the Haudenosaunee. It's a very valid valid point. But I I would say that there are, there are a number of uh, white people who who would share that importance because uh, we've seen 
we've seen claims that people the uh, the, the people of Ontario do not want to see areas like the green belt torn up. They don't they don't they do, they want to start stop the urban sprawl into these areas. They want they want to stop this. And I think that there's a it's important to to uh to make a point that while we might be coming from different points of view, I do think that we're that we ultimately want the same goal is to keep this land free from just mindless sprawl. As you said, just growing just building out neighborhoods and laying down track just to offset, you know, uh, property taxes for municipalities. We need to think better about this. Uh, and that there is, there is a, a bit of a cross, uh, cross interest, uh, that at play here. Um, also, I, I don't think that the, just building out new developments, uh, a new, new, new neighborhoods solves any of our issues of urban, urban, uh, development and, and, and housing shortage, uh, in the 905, uh, taking it away from the 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 land that that was promised doesn't solve our problems in terms of urbanization and it definitely doesn't help uh our our relationship with our our first nations uh uh partners uh in this country also i thought you Roland, you and i noticed something uh on a a we were, we were digging one part when there was, the provincial government was talking about expanding the green belt and we noticed that conveniently enough that expansion stopped at caledonia <laughs> Uh, the, the, the provincial government was talking about expanding the green belt and we noticed that where they ended it, they ended it right at Caledonia, um, which I thought was very, I'm not just going to say anything that in terms of motivation, but I found it very suspicious that if they expanded that green belt designation into the area around Caledonia, a lot of issues would have been solved overnight and conveniently enough. Oh no, just right at that, that municipal line. Nope. That's, that's where we're at. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, this is, this is, a. Uh the age old story of, of a bullying realizing that, that he can bully people. Right. It's, it's really that, that simple. He's like, uh, we're not going to touch these people. We're not going to deal with that, but we know, we know historically that we, we can do this. Right. Uh, we, again, when Carl was down in six nations covering the anniversary, that was 15 years removed from a last standoff with the OPP and the Ontario provincial police. Um, and what that tells us is that, is that again, they firmly believe, that because this is to contested land, because the waters are murky, that they can simply maneuver their way into ownership. And, and it's really that simple, is, is that uh, we don't know what the answer is, right? And it, it's, it's, it's one of those old, old philosophies that it's easier to, to beg for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. And, that, and that's essentially what we're seeing. Let's, uh, I, one of the things we also wanted to talk about today was um, that... Uh, you know that we're very aware that um, you know indigenous issues tend to come into the news uh, in Canada, in Ontario, when it's a matter of, of indigenous rights coming up against Canadian rights. And there's so much more to indigenous life than that. Um, I know, Carl, that you, you are the executive director of a, um, uh, a the French Center in Niagara, I believe. Um, and uh, I have to say, friendship centers were something I, I was not aware of um, before, but actually uh, deals with something that we've been wanting to look at, which is um, how indigenous people um, uh, operate within the uh, within an urban environment. So, you know, away from places like uh, uh, Six Nations of the Grand River. Um, uh, so, I was wondering if you could talk a little about 
a bit about what friendship centers do and also the challenges that are happening, obviously, because of COVID um, for um, First Nations people, Indigenous people living within um, a, an urban uh context in the 905 region. Yeah, I mean, Sean and I can both speak to the Friendship Center movement. Uh, we're both self-identified Friendship Center babies uh, raised raised in this movement. And I would encourage your, your listeners to reach out to the Peel Indigenous Network uh, that serves a lot of the 905. Uh, or if you have people write in, uh, I guess you don't want the 416ers. So I won't talk about Council Fire or the Native Canadian Center in Toronto. Uh, <laughs> we have a very relaxed definition of 905. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm not sure 416ers are like prohibited or how that works. I don't want to. I don't want to wade into that muddy water. So. <laughs> no. Who? 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 Never heard of right? it. Right. <laughs> if you're on Bloor Street, then no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the the. The friendship centers, I think, were crucial to making sure that urban Indigenous people weren't forgotten in the vaccine rollout. Uh, Canada Land actually did a great podcast where they talked about how when Saul Mamakwa was accused of line jumping, uh, he was he was actually advocating for housing in northern and remote communities. Uh, but the conversation was also being framed around urban Indigenous people being forgotten in in the vaccine rollout. So we don't like. I'm from Oneida, which is near London, Ontario. Uh, I mean, Oneida territory spreads out in much bigger areas than that. But but in a colonial sense, my my so-called settlement reserve area is by London. So, but I was not part of their vaccine rollout because I lived 200 kilometers away in in Niagara Falls, Ontario. So fortunately, in Niagara, public health has a great relationship with the friendship centers. And while while there were there were some quirks, I would say that that we're pretty close to a model partnership when it comes to having that strong friendship center presence uh, and other indigenous organizations like our great Niagara chapter of Native Women, our indigenous diabetes health circle, Niagara Peninsula Aboriginal Area Management Board, uh, the school board, indigenous organizations, Niagara College Indigenous Education got involved in in the vaccine rollout. So, uh, but we also had to because we were forgotten about from a policy standpoint um just like with development it became politically inconvenient for indigenous people to be part of phase one so we were able to get a lot of our elders uh into the phase one development but it was supposed to be the the whole indigenous population that was supposed to be part of phase one uh, the, uh, unfortunately, the infant mortality rates are still two to four times higher in urban indigenous settings. So just because we live in cities and just because there's more economic mobility for indigenous people in cities doesn't mean that there's not still great inequity. Uh, and that would be in the 905 or, or down here in the, I don't know what we are, the 647. I'm not, I'm going to get lost getting into area code talk here, but, but we're still, <laughs> indigenous people are, are making do with less here in the cities. And we're still being forgotten. Uh, but thank goodness for the Friendship Center movement. Well, uh, it was funny. We were doing some just kind of some statistical digging. And uh, people might not recognize this, but in Hamilton alone, uh, the indigenous population makes up 2% of Hamilton's population. I mean, that's not a, a, a small uh, a, a small, a small little insignificant number. That's a sizable community inside in, the, in Hamilton that... Uh, that, that makes up a, that that contributes to the Hamilton way of life, and so when you talk about you know COVID nineteen vaccination rollout, that is a a, a huge community that you'd have to uh, they have to address and make sure that you you get you get to them. 
Yeah, like one of the things that we we need to understand is that historically, since the 1950s, um, Indigenous people have been migrating from their traditional communities into urban environments. And and that's really the basis of friendship centers, is that when people from Six Nations and people from uh, Mississauga of Credit First Nations made that decision to leave their communities, probably due to racism, probably due to colonial policies. They, they came into these urban cores like Hamilton, like Niagara, uh, like Fort Erie, and established these friendship centers. Uh, the Ontario Federation of Indigenous Friendship Centers, which is our provincial overseer, if you will, our provincial uh, umbrella organization, um, has, has quoted that 85% of Indigenous people live in an urban environment. So when we talk about us being, um, what is it, three to four percent of the population, eighty-five percent of the three to four population of Canada, the country of Canada, lives in that urban environment, and that's why the, the work that Carl does via his role as executive director at the Niagara Regional Native Center, and the work that I do as as a as a vice president on that board of directors is is so important, is because we are the first point of contact for anybody coming into our communities. Uh, a lot of the programs that we provide um, are programs that, that that cover from cradle to grave, essentially, from prenatal care to, to youth programming to education to adult literacy to our seniors program, so on and so forth. So, yeah, uh, friendship centers are a fantastic tool. And I, if you listen to our last episode on One Dish No One, Mike, that's why we are so critical of, of the federal government in their lack of acknowledgement of, of the good work that the Friendship Centers does and continues to do. Yeah, I, I, I was listening to that episode and, and you mentioned that, um, you know, until probably uh, um, kind of during the Harper era, I think, um, Friendship Centers were, were, were viewed as like core, a core funding uh, uh, thing. So basically something that is funded in perpetuity by the Canadian government. Uh, no ifs, no buts, no maybe. Um, and that changed. Um, so, so now you're, you're, you're treated like any other kind of uh, uh, non-profit organization that has to kind of bid uh, for funding, I guess. Um, is, is, am I understanding that correctly? Uh, yeah, back back in the day, we had what was called evergreen funding. Um, so it was pretty much status quo up until the Harper era um, was coming to the end, and now very much so. Um, what we have seen is that our funding has consistently. The only time there has been change is when there's been a decrease in funding, um, and the federal government um, was the core f- core. Uh, program funders for our core programs. Our core programs included um, support for our executive director, support for like building and maintenance, um, receptionist, uh, things of that nature, right? So it was really the meat and bones of what what keeps our friendship centers up and operating. And the only, again, the only time we've ever seen a a change within my lifetime, I like to say that I'm a young guy, but reaching that that, uh, mid thirties level, Um, but in my lifetime. Oh, you're, (laughs) <laughs> You're young, don't worry. <laughs> is is when it when there has been a, a fundamental decrease. The uh, federal government pulled a really um, uh, I was going to say douchebag move. Well, I've said it now, douchebag <laughs> move um, with uh, with with the uh, issue of of uh, um, what. Can, what can happen because of the of the of the sort of overlapping jurisdiction of of uh, in the education and health field, as I understand it, 
is that you get disputes about um, who should be paying for healthcare for First Nations people. Um, and there was kind of an agreement that, um, at least in the, in the examples of children, that you know you would never let a child not receive healthcare because you're arguing over who's going to pay. And yet, the federal government and the current liberal federal government has not honored that, as I understand it. Is that is that? Uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, hundred percent. So going back into uh, the mid two thousands, there was a, this concept called Jordan's principle. And and to summarize what you just said, what essentially happened is is that an indigenous child left his community, went to an urban environment, received health care, was there for an extended period of time. And all of a sudden, the provincial and federal government started to argue over who's financially responsible to, to foot this bill. And what ended up happening is they never resolved that. And this child ended up dying in hospital because of uh, bureaucracy. Right. And, and, and this, is, this is a prime example of, of what Indigenous people are, are still seeing and still witnessing today. Um, one of the things that I would encourage your listeners to understand is that the very concept of human rights did not exist on First Nations communities in our traditional territories until 2008. And what that fundamentally means is, is that governments were legally and willingly able to discriminate against us based on the fact that we were First Nations, that we had status. Um, and what we're seeing now, so that 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 clause has been revoked and is now applicable. But what we're seeing now is indigenous organizations, um, indigenous advocacy groups, holding the governments to account and taking them to court via um, whatever issue is of the day, right? So example being water. The government has not and does not provide adequate funding for our the, our water systems on reserve, on, on our traditional community. So my reserve has filed a class action lawsuit against the federal government. Uh, Cindy Blackstock, the executive director of the Family and Child Caring Society, has held the government to account on several times, several times, and has taken the government to court, um, to the Human Rights Tribunal, and the government has been found guilty of committing acts of discrimination against First Nations children. And they've been issued seven non-compliance orders. Because they have not followed through on those non-compliance orders, the, the Human Rights Tribunal has since ruled that you are now legally responsible to pay $40,000 in compensation for every single individual who, who has been affected by your racist policies. Um, and and like this, this, this has been happening since the Harper errors era and has continued on into the Justin Trudeau era. Um, I think the last time we spoke about it, the 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 federal government's stance was that uh, we need to we need to fully evaluate this, and we may we may um, um, we may challenge this decision, or we may not. And it, I, if anything, this is probably a follow up, a good follow up for Carl and I on one dish one, Mike, to see where they're at with that. Yeah, yeah, and I guess you know this is. To sum up that kind of dichotomy between you know what we're talking about, like a, a check for eighteen million dollars, and then this kind of uh, almost penny pinching over, well, we don't know if we're going to accept that we have to support uh, First Nations children when when they go to hospital, um, is is kind of typifies how I feel that the current government uh, is handling. Um, Indigenous issues generally is like you throw checks at a, at a question, but you, you're not willing to sit down and actually address the underlying problems, which is you know treating uh, sitting down tre- uh, 
on a nation-to-nation basis with with First Nations people, uh, say in Caledonia or wherever. Um, and it's, it's like, well, if you write enough big enough check, maybe they'll go away. And it's like that's never gonna, you know, we've <laughs> that's never gonna solve the solve the problems. Uh, again, I mean, I'm I'm kind of putting my own uh, interpretation on things, which I shouldn't do, but. Uh, does that sound like a, like a reasonable kind of uh, interpretation of, of this kind of government's modus operandi? Yeah, I mean, I, what we're happen- what we're seeing is 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 them ducking and dodging their print their 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 positions, right? So, like when Justin Trudeau came into office, he said, "There's no relationship that is more important than the relationship of our indigenous people." And one of the easiest and most fundamental things any government could do is, is to acknowledge that acknowledge that we have control and ownership of our own lives and our own des- destinies, that we are in fact sovereign and that we can choose our how we can choose to live our lives the way we see fit. So they're not doing that, but then they are also throwing like partial monies at situations and but in a in a method that is misleading. Because when you hear $18 billion, like that's a lot of money. I will never see $18 million in my lifetime, right? <laughs> but they, they're throwing it out in this manner that that is saying, like, look at us. Good for us. We're, we're committing record-breaking funding um, to, to Indigenous people. But, again, what what is, on average, what is non-Indigenous people getting, right? It, like, it, it doesn't matter. Like, the, to me, this is a pass or fail. This isn't, a, well, I, 70% is good. Right, it, it is a rate of change that 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 is the definition of, of of racism itself. And and while they have, and I will acknowledge that they have given out more money, is it on par with what everybody else is getting? If my son lived on reserve, would he receive the same quality of education? Would he have the same lifestyle that that uh, he has now living in an urban environment? And I want to say, and I feel comfortable in saying that, no, that isn't the case. Well, I think we we are coming as as usual. You could talk. I feel like we we're you know just scraping the surface, uh, scraping the surface of my own ignorance above all. Um, so really appreciate uh, Sean and Carl you coming back onto the podcast again. Uh, I just uh, feel feel that every time we we speak, we just learn so much. So so thank you for that. Thank you for having us. To your listeners, don't feel, don't forget to tune in to One Dish One Mic every Saturday. Absolutely, yeah. And we'll make sure everything's uh, included in the uh, in the show notes as well. <laughs> but yeah, do listen to One Dish One Mic. It's awesome, um, and uh, you'll learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time.
Hello, good e What's this going? I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.